Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Janice, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, April 11th, 2013. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are on page XXVIII in the doctor's opinion, and we begin with the paragraph, Frothy Emotional Appeal Seldom Suffices. The reference number for yesterday, which was Wednesday, April 10th, is 4247. That's 4247. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I would now like to ask Yerini to please read the 12 steps. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, my spiritual brothers and sisters. My name is Irini, and I am a very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Irini. I'd now like to ask Margaret H. to please read the 12 Traditions. 
Thank you, Janice. Good morning, A Vision for You. This is Margaret H., a compulsive overeater in Illinois. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, and I pass. Mm, thank you, Margaret, very much. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year, and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book, and we are in the doctor's opinion on page XXVIII, and we begin with the paragraph, Frothy Emotional Appeal Seldom Suffices. And this morning I would like to ask Katie to please get us started. Good morning, I'm Katie, a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Wow, this is such a powerful um, paragraph. I have frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, highlighted and underlined with um, multiple strokes of my pen. Um, you know, because that's where I lived for years in these rooms. I, 
I had a reason. I always had a reason of why I picked up the food. And I was trying to, you know, as was uh, talked about so much yesterday, I was trying to work the steps, trying to, you know, look at abstinence as just one of the tools, you know, trying all these things to, um, to try to work this program without first putting down the food. And then, you know, I would have all these frothy, you know, dramatic um, uh, reasons for why I picked up the food before I um, had that pause. And, you know, I, I cannot bottle up and um, market what happened, you know, and sell what happened to me that made me go from that person who always picked up the food before I stopped and paused and said, wait, what am I going to lose by doing this? What is this really going to help me through this situation? And that is what happened when I finally put down the food, finally um, was able to say, you know, God, I cannot do this. I can't do this. I believe you're out there, and I'm going to let you help me through this. And that pause, um, you know, where I'm able to say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I need to look at my behavior and not um, pick up the food like I always did because that was my knee-jerk reaction to everything that happened in my life. And then I never got past it. I never got past um, working through anything. I was like a... a a 10-year-old when I finally got abstinent. And, you know, I just wanted to look also at, um, because this just um, reminds me of, you know, how it works in Chapter 5, which this section is read in a lot of the OA meetings I go to. I don't know that it's read that much anymore. But um, at one point in my recovery, I had memorized it. But I couldn't couldn't grasp it. It says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And, you know, that's what um, I feel like this frothy emotional appeal, you know, it keeps me in this place of being constitutionally incapable of being honest that I think that my situation is harder, um, more unique and different such that I can't recover, that this program will not work for me because, you know, I am so unique. And, you know, this message is that um, we must be grounded in a power greater than ourselves, that you know, you can take the craziest situation on the planet and God has seen that and God can change that. And I'm just so grateful that we are uh, sharing this message, you know, from XXBIII um, that, you know, the doctor recognized back in 1939 or 35, whenever this was written, and that it still carries true today that, you know, we, we think that, um, 
that were were terminal and that will never get better. But you know, there's people that are getting recovery that have tried for years and years and years and years. And uh, the the first thing to do is to put that food down. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? This is Margaret. Go ahead, Margaret. Good morning, Janice. This is Good Morning Vision for You, Margaret, compulsive overeater in South Jersey. Um, You know, in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves. And that word, if, if they are to recreate their lives. I mean, I I thought I came in here to lose weight. But thank God I found out that that's, you know, it's to recreate my life. And that's a big if. And my life must be grounded in a power greater than myself. I don't think I, I know I didn't have the, uh, even even an inkling, to be honest with you, of what this program was about until several years ago. And then, I re- and then I remember reading this. This is all about recreating my life with a higher power because, of, you know, the saying used to be in OA and it's still, still, you know, the same person will eat again. You know, the same person will eat again. If I don't change, I will eat again, no doubt about it, because my mind will drive me back when I don't get my way, when things aren't going my way, uh, which they don't happen to be going my way right now. (laughs) And, you know, but I have to recreate my life because I have to realize, as was just being said, I'm not unique. You know, people are having problems all over the world. And thank God today we bind together and we don't have to eat over it. What a miracle that is. So, you know, in in the AA 12 and 12, it says it's a fascinating journey. And you know what? It really, really is a fascinating journey. It's so fascinating to learn about ourselves and others and God and learn that we can live this life one day at a time together without picking up. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Melanie. Leah. Monica. I think I heard Lois. Yes. And Monica. And Kim and Leah. Did I miss anybody else? We'll start with Lois. Gang's all here. Uh, Go ahead, Lois. Okay, good morning. Uh, This is Lois, uh, compulsive overeater. And um, I wanted to talk about fraud the emotional peel seldom suffices suffices, the message which can interest and hold these alcoholics people must have depth and weight. And for me and from my experience, you know, I, I jumped right into that frothy emotional appeal because for so many years, you know, I, I kept asking God to help me to stop eating compulsively. And lots of those times, it was emotional. I mean, I asked him when I was when I was uh, not terribly emotional, but usually I was so full of, of just hopelessness that I, I needed him to help me, and I was very frothy and emotional. I, was, I wanted him to help me to stop the suffering. And, and one, one reason or another, you know, there was a time when I asked God to help me uh, not eat compulsively, and and. I didn't do anything different other than I must have um I must have really hit bottom. I know I was desperate and I could not do it myself. 
And for some reason or other, God found, God knew that there was something different in me. And I asked him to help me to stop eating compulsively. And, and that I, I just could not do it anymore, that I give up, I need him. And it happened. You know, I took a leap of faith and God was there. And, and um, God helped me to not eat compulsively again. He took away my desire to eat compulsively and helped me begin to do the work that was, you know, behind all of the compulsive overeating. And he did that for me, and he can do that, you know, for 100 people here, and, they, and he can do it for everyone on this line. And with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Go ahead, Monica. Good morning, Janice. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Suffices means enough. Frothy, agitated, trivial, unsubstantial. You know, we've all heard the frothy emotional appeal. We've had our own, but we've also heard it, you know. Just step away. You think he'd do it for his wife. It's going to kill you. And we've all heard these, you know, our doctors talking to us, our families talking to us, all these people yak, yak, yakking at us. But it seldom suffices. It wasn't enough. And it goes on to say the message which which can hold interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. And how do we first start hearing that message? That message starts with one compulsive overeater talking to another compulsive overeater sharing their story. And we start with that when we're giving the message. And hopefully that other person can identify for the first time in their lives, identify that they are not alone. Oh my God, here's another person that does the same thing, who thinks the same crazy things as I do. And that's where the message starts. And then it goes on with the message must have depth and weight. We have to go on beyond our stories and getting the identification. We then go on and say, look, there is a way out of this hell. There is a solution. And we go on and we tell them their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves. And I'm going to turn to page 98 where it says, job or no job wife or no wife. We simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well, regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. And then we go on and we take them by the hand and we guide them through the 12 steps so they can get recovery and recreate their lives. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Monica. Go ahead, Kim. Thanks, Janice. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Depth and weight. Depth and weight. You know, on Monday, we had almost 200 people listening live to this meeting. And that's not even taking account the people that listen to the recording afterwards and the people that listen on our website. Why is that growth? Why is there growth like that? Because this meeting has depth and weight. This meeting has people who are recovered on it, sharing the message of hope. 
What is the purpose of meeting? Tradition 5 tells us each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And in our format, I'm going to paraphrase, but I'm not sure of the exact wording, but we said, what is our goal here? It's to abstain, to recover, and to carry this message. And that's what we have on this line. This is not frothy emotional appeal. This is not someone telling us about what we should do when they don't have our problem. But even more importantly, the reason this meeting has depth and weight is because you hear people who are recovered. You know what is not a message of depth and weight? Is when we share relapse. When we come into a meeting and we basically throw up on the group and tell them how we can't get out of the food and our boss is a jerk and our, we want to leave our husband and our kids won't listen to us, how is that going to hold the interest of alcoholics? So we have to think, what is our message? What is our message? What are we carrying? We don't share relapse. You know, one of the gifts I got in program when I, after I lost the weight and got some recovery was I rediscovered the athlete in me, and I learned how to ski in my 30s. And if I went to a mountain in Vermont, and I asked to have a ski instructor, and he told me that he was certified in this and certified in that and had taken this class and was number one in this class, and I asked him, what mountains have you skied? And he said, well, I've actually never skied, but look at all these degrees I have. Do you think I would stick two popsicle sticks on my feet and go up to the top of the mountain and go down it on that man who's never skied? Because I need someone who has the experience of skiing, not just has the intellectual knowledge. So that is what we have at this meeting. These aren't just people that can quote the big book. These aren't just people that, that know, know how to say the 12 steps. These are people who have gone down that mountain themselves. They know how to do these steps. They can show you what we have done. That is why this message has definitely. And when it says there that they must recreate their lives, recreate their lives, we have to have that transformation. And we talk about promises being throughout this book. Well, I'm going to read you a promise on page 41. And it's after Fred. You know, Fred who had the best day in the world, he still drank. And at the bottom of 41 it says, I now remembered what my alcoholic's friends had told me. How they prophesied if I had an alcoholic mind, the time would come when I would drink again. And that is a promise. If we do not recreate our lives, if we do not walk through these steps, and if we still have that alcoholic mind, the time and place will come when we will drink again. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Go ahead, Leah. Thank you so much, Dennis. I'll join the bandwagon here. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I, too, wanted to touch on uh, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Again, frothy means soft. It means lighthearted in content, trivial or insubstantial. Appeal means plea. Seldom suffices. Suffice means proven adequate or enough. So frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. You know, like the way the doctors plead with us. Or the way our parents plead with us. Or perhaps older children plead with us. Or good friends plead with us. Don't eat. You know, (laughs) don't eat. I mean, my parents told me, don't eat. Don't eat, Leah. Don't starve, Leah. 
Don't purge, Leah. <laughs> you know, your parents told you that. You know, perhaps your spouse told you that. Your employer tells you that. Your doctor tells you that. You know, don't eat was never a newsflash to me. Don't eat is not a newsflash for people like me. I have to compulsively overeat. I don't have a choice when I'm in that position. I had to compulsively overeat because when the pain of living got so bad, I didn't know anything else that would work. And I pursued that, and I knew it caused more trouble, and I knew my life was a mess, but I kept singing that song that sooner or later I'll learn how to uh, recapture the good old days, you know. Uh, So this frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. It's not enough to hear the pleadings of people who have not lived in the torture and the misery and the hell of the disease. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. I want to hear from someone who's, who's been in that quicksand and has been delivered from it. I mean, it says it straight out of the text on page 18, but the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. I mean, so what if a shrink sits across a table and, you know, we, and speaks to me about the ludicrousy of, of a talking pie, as was mentioned a couple of days ago? I mean, that does nothing for a real compulsive overeater because the pleads and pleadings of family, of friends, of employers and physicians, they don't suffice in separating these alcoholics from their bottle or us from a cellophane bag in a bakery box. Doesn't do it. Doesn't do it justice. Why is that? Well, because a recovered compulsive overeater is an expert on this disease, on the hell of living in it, and an expert on the disease and how to recover from it because nobody really knows what it's like to be a compulsive overeater except a compulsive overeater. And nobody knows more about recovery from compulsive overeating than a recovered compulsive overeater. A recovered compulsive overeater has a stronger message of hope to take to other compulsive overeaters than anyone else. Than anyone else. It says here, in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. This is about a recreation. This is not about just mere, simple elimination of binge foods. This is about a whole restoration, a wholeness, a soundness, a recreation of one's life. You know, personally, I came here feeling restless, irritable, and discontent. I came here full of shame, full of fear, full of guilt, full of remorse, self-seeking, frightened, inconsiderate human being. And I went from that condition of the mind to the condition that's described in the promises. And since that is the case, then surely I've gone through a radical change in personality. I've gone an undergo I've undergone a spiritual awakening. And that is a recreation and that's a message of, of depth and weight. And with that I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Was there anyone else who wanted to share on this paragraph that I might have missed? I'm Sharon. I would like to share on that paragraph. Sharon, Can you hear me? Go ahead. 
I can hear All you. Right. Okay, thank Good. you. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. I need to hear this over and over and over again this morning because I missed it. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than ourselves if they are to recreate their lives. And I am just seeing this is just speaking to my heart because I just started listening to this meeting a year ago last July. I have been in OA for many years and all the various types of programs besides OA. And uh, my I was always back into the food. And the thing that I see now is the... Um, uh, the voluntary must. They say must. They're voluntary because this book is subjective only. But these voluntary musts are are. There's no negotiation. There's no rationalization. There's nothing. And I always did do the frothy emotional appeal with most of my life. So I am so grateful today to be listening to this from the beginning again and to understand. What I didn't understand, and I can't say it's you know anybody's fault, it was my own because I still wanted what I wanted. So I am just so grateful, and I just want to uh, relay a message of hope to others out on the line that have been in OA for years and, and struggled and, and uh, so on and so forth. This particular paragraph I plan to put to memory and memorize because I need this in the God to write that on the tablet of my heart and uh, on the top of my mind so that I don't forget that there is recovery and I am so looking forward to be living. Um, I'm on the fourth step now, so I'm in the process of learning how to uh, live with a recreated life. My higher power is going to give me a recreated life. I am so grateful to all of you on this line, and thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Sharon. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. You know, I, I thank you for all the sharing so far this morning. You know, this, this doctor's opinion is such a setup. It's such a setup, such a beautiful setup, because we're talking about the doctor's opinion. What he saw and was willing to write a letter and put it in this book. You know, we're getting, we're getting a picture, we're getting painted a picture of what it means to be an alcoholic of this type, a compulsive overeater of my type, of my type. You know, and we, we've, been, we've been reading about exactly what happens to us with this phenomenon of craving, this phenomenon of craving that once we pick up that first bite, we cannot stop. And we cannot stop ourselves from starting again, even when we do put it down. And so this paragraph speaks to me so clearly of what Dr. Silkworth saw in these men. He saw that in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Well, he watched this happening. He saw this happening in a place where he had been hopelessly, helplessly watching these alcoholics again and again and again, doing whatever he could, hoping against hope that this time he might be able to help them. But he saw something different happening here. And he saw 
that no matter how many appeals, frothy, emotional, or otherwise, it could not stop. Once having formed the habit and found they could not break it, their problems piled up on them and became astonishingly difficult to solve. And a friend of mine said at our meeting last night, I had already walked through the gates of insanity. And I don't know about you, but I too had walked through the gates of insanity. And I did not know what to do. But it says here that the message that was carried to me had to have depth and weight. And they had to come to someone who knew what they were talking about. But when that happened, everything shifted. Something in me shifted and the world shifted and there was something that I could see that was different. For the first time, something that I could see. And I could start to believe that there was a power greater than me. If there was a power greater than them that could solve their problems, perhaps there was a power greater than me that could solve my problem as well. So we're being set up beautifully here with a picture painted of exactly who we are and what we're up against, and then what he had seen, what the solution was going to be. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to share in this paragraph before we move on? This is Phoenix from California. I'd like to share. Uh, who, who is the first person from California? Phoenix. Katie? Phoenix, Phoenix and then Katie. Phoenix and then Katie. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Oh, I'm loving what I'm hearing, and I just so identify with this. This is my, I'm a recovered member, and this is my second time in the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And <clears throat> I, I'm a relapse survivor, and one of the things that, um, what I realized is that I had dieted. I wasn't a big dieter, but I dieted. And and when I would diet, I would I could lose a hundred pounds, and then I came to the fellowship uh, many years ago, and I uh, had the because of a certain level of desperation and a and a power greater than myself, even though I didn't recognize it at that time, I was able to uh, let go of about two hundred pounds, and uh, but I couldn't stay stopped, and that's what I asked this power greater than myself that I did find that I know I I know what it is to abstain from compulsive eating what I don't know is how to stay stopped and what I should do and I'm willing to do anything I'm willing to go anywhere in order to be able to do that and when I was guided back to Overeaters Anonymous uh about f- almost 5 years ago I was abstinent when I came back but and I was working the program to the best of my ability, and it wasn't bad. But I knew, I knew that I had that fear that I was going to go back to the food. If that mental obsession hit, which I didn't know to call it that at the time, I was going to go back to the food, and that's when I asked my higher power, guide me to the right people, create a program within the program. That's the best way I could put it. And that's when being on the phone meetings, I heard people talking about they were recovered, and I was guided to people that had, you know, substantial, that that had a, a, a message to carry to me in this fellowship that was that had depth and weight that talked about, which I understood a power greater than myself, but I needed to find out how to, how to be guided by that higher power through the steps, through studying the big book. 
And so I, you know, and the question of recreating one's life, it's a total, when the big book talks about this isn't just uh, having a better attitude for me or anybody else that needs this it, this transformation, you know, it's it's about, you know, being reborn, being reborn. And absolutely, absolutely identify with the, the, the person that talked about in this, there is a solution they talk about you know, armed with the facts, you know, we can, we can carry this message, you know, and that wins, that wins others over because it won me over. And I'm just grateful to be here and uh, learning all the things that I'm learning and just walking through this fabulous adventure, this fabulous experience, because it gets better and better. That's my experience, better and better, freer and freer. And I pass. Thank you, Phoenix. Katie, go ahead. Are you there, Katie? All right, we'll move on to the next paragraph. Robin, would you read that for us, please? This is Robin. I am a compulsive overeater, a recovered compulsive overeater. Men and women, oh, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. Hi, this is Katie. I'm I'm sorry, excuse me. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel, after many years of experience, that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Well, as I see it, it seems like there are two different groups of people. There's the group, like my son-in-law, who... Uh, maybe has had too much holiday and has eaten a lot, um, been drinking too much beer at the Super Bowl while while he's watching the Super Bowl and finds that he's got a tire around his middle. I watch him decide to lose weight. He loses weight, and then he goes back to his life. I am not a part of that group. And, you know, what what, uh, Dr. Silkworth is telling us here is that there's, there's another group, and I belong to this group, this group, um, it's it has become much more than a food issue. It's involved the people around me, um, you know, and and not just the fact that as compulsive overeaters, as a compulsive overeater, I have neglected my children. Um, I have ignored their needs. You know, for me, excuse me, for me, it, you know, many many years of attending diet clubs and you know taking my little pamphlet that showed how much weight I'd lost or gained over the past week, and I would scurry back into my little cave and, uh, you know, be on my own doing what I thought I was, you know, following this this food plan, which, of course, would last maybe, I don't know, five hours if I was lucky after a weigh-in and then back into the food, back into the cellophane bags and boxes in my cave, um, ignoring my children, ignoring my husband, and not only that, but, but uh, you know, my family being afraid of me, 
what kind of mood is mom in today? Oh, she's in her room, so we'll leave her alone. Homework to do? You know, I've got a problem with school. Well, you better wait. Wait till she comes out. She might not be in a good mood. I mean, I can see that I had way transcended that first group way, way long before I finally accepted it and admitted it to myself. And um, the thing that I see that that makes such a difference, I mean, what, what happens when we come into AA, into OA, is that we take care of each other, and that's why this works. I come out of my cave, I come back into the world, I help you. The word altruistic um, means unselfish. It means that we, we help each other. And um, coming back out into the world and becoming a part of something bigger than myself, not just taking care of, of me, myself, and I, not just getting my needs met, but having the, the, um, having the welfare of the group in my, you know, have to make, having that be more important than what I'm what I'm getting personally out of life. Um, so, and what Dr. Silkworth is saying here is that this really works. The fact that these people, uh, of all the things that medical people have, medical professionals have been throwing at the disease, um, all of the different methods, the thing that works is the unselfishness of our group. It's the unselfishness of the people who come back to minister to each other, to um, share the fact that there is a power, a power much, much greater than this self that would go to diet clubs and then scurry back to her hole. So, um, you know, altruism and unselfishness and taking care of, of each other. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Hi, my Thank name is Thank you, Robert. Elaine? Lorraine from New Jersey. Go ahead. Hi. Um, since coming on this meeting uh, a very short time ago, I realized I liked what Kim said about the ski instructor. I would never take lessons from someone who has never skied before. When I got on this meeting from a month ago to, to today, I feel like I'm being taught by the experts. And you know what? I want to be taught by an expert. And that's where I feel I am today, learning from people who know, who've been through it, who understand, who are doing it. And I am so grateful for that. Thank you. Hi, Linda. Go ahead, Linda. Um, I just came on the meeting. What page are we on in the big book? Sure, we're in the doctor's opinion, X-X-B-I-I-I. Thank you. You're welcome. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? This is Paula, may I share? Go ahead, Paula. Thank you, Janice, and thank you also for the service that you do. This is Paula, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. I'm going to start right with that top line, and that it is, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Just want to stop there for a moment with that word. Having or showing tender, gentle, or delicate feelings. But listen even more. Influenced more by emotion, fear the love, than reason. Acting from feeling rather than practical motives. 
how many looked at the alcoholic or the compulsive eater and said, huh, leave them alone. Just leave them alone. They didn't want to be near them. But that pot, let them stand with us for a while on the firing line. The firing line, hmm, well, that's quite an apt description, isn't it? See the tragedies of despairing wife, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become part of the daily work. Now, before that, we think, oh, I'm not hurting anybody else. It's not them I'm hurting. The husband that you don't even want to listen to. Because you have better things to do. May I tell you, those better things to do are to eat. To eat. And what about the child that's waiting? They'll wait a little longer. Or perhaps they won't. But this is what it says here. The little children, let the solving of these problems, and look at that, become part of their daily work and even of their sweeping moments. And the most cynical, once you see this and you're with it, wait a minute, can I change that? Once you live it. Once you live it, you were there. You were there. Will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. Not only did we accept it, honey, we're right alongside you. We're right alongside you. We see differently also now. That part, and I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop right there because there is where it is, isn't it? Acceptance and encouragement. Thank you for allowing me to share with that. I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Um, this is Kathy from New Jersey. Go ahead, Kathy. It's the first time I've spoken, so I'm a little nervous, but paragraphs really hit me because I'm at my daughter's right now, and I'm surrounded by active food addiction, and I'm very fragile in my own recovery right now. And it's very difficult for me to... Um, just continue my program daily and know that I cannot help my family, but know that there is a God for them like there is a God for me. And in regard to myself, I could not give anything away um, that was effective until I really have it myself. Because if you talk to people when you haven't really recovered, they can feel that. They know it. And when you are sincere about your own program and you share with someone else, that comes across and you don't even have to, um, you know, you just have to be yourself. You don't have to, you know, have any big scripts, um, you know, any dissertations. You're able to listen to the person and you're able to ask God for what they need and then whatever that is, is is transmitted through you because you've had the experience. I've experienced this in other programs, so I know it to be true. I only hope that it comes true for me in OA. I don't want, I know that OA is a tremendous power for healing for us compulsive overeaters. And I would like to be someone who transmits the keys of the kingdom to somebody else. Um, Because that's how I feel. I feel freed. And as my family watches me be a responsible mother, daughter, wife, they get that I get what I'm supposed to be doing. And it takes a big burden off of them because I'm not asking them to be God for me. I have a God, and I'm using him today. 
So that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Well, this is Janice, and I am over. Go ahead. Who's that? Hi, this is Tiffany, but I'll wait. Go ahead. Okay. Um, hi, this is Tiffany from London. Um, I want to comment on the word cynical. Um, I have cynical relatives. They don't understand why I'm on this program. Um, you won't be able to last long on this. No one can do this. Um, in today's world, we've got all that junk all around us. You have to learn how to eat normally and not binge. And I think to myself, I wish, you know, I wish they would just live with me in my house for one week. And they would see the torment that I have been through with my binge eating, um, you know, eating frozen things, eating everything in the in the cupboard, going, knocking on neighbors' doors to ask them for food, for chocolate specifically. Um, you know, just basically doing anything to get my hands on some food. And then because I was so stuffed up, um, I couldn't sleep the whole night because I felt so sick. And I would just, like, sit in my bed, pray to God, you know, help me, help me out of this, just help, help, help. And... They can't see this, and no one can understand it besides other um, compulsive overeaters. And they, you know, why do you have to do this? So in the beginning when I was on program, just not too long ago, like three months ago, I would talk myself blue and tell them, look, look how I was feeling. Look, I couldn't do anything. I was just sitting on a chair all day feeling so lethargic and not being able to look after my kids properly and having these... Um, mood swing, swings, I would see my husband walking through the door and he would look at me and think, um, what mood is she in today? Is she good or bad? And, you know, they don't know, they will never understand. Only others like us understand us really well. And I just have to accept, they will just be cynical all the time that I'm on program. And... I've learned, you know, I, I, if they stop on it, I just say, um, I don't talk about this. You know, this is my personal life. I don't talk about it, but it hurts. You know, when really close relatives are there, they don't support you when you just, you know, at the end of the day, we're just trying to lead healthy lives physically and emotionally. We're not doing anything bad, you know. We're just trying to heal ourselves. But I suppose, you know, not everything goes like the way how we want in life. This is something I have to deal with. And I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this paragraph through Dr. Silkworth's eyes because he's telling us, he's telling us something about his own experience trying to help alcoholics. You know, if any field that psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics that we appear sentimental, let them stand with us, he says. Let them stand with us on the firing line and see what we see. The tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, the families. Let the solving of these problems be part of their daily work. It was his daily work seeing that the problems that piled up on them became astonishingly difficult to solve. That he kept trying to help, that he cared about these people. 
that he had feelings and emotions that were triggered by watching the tragedies. And he even dreamed about it, even in his sleeping moment. It was never separated from him. He would think about these people, what he could do to help them, how many problems they were facing, the despair, the despair. So how would he not be encouraged and hopeful seeing this altruistic movement that was growing up among them? And what was he seeing? He was seeing that these men, these people were getting sober and staying sober and that their families were being reunited, that their lives were changing. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing. Now, this is something for a man of this caliber to say, we have found nothing that has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than this movement, than this movement. You know, how hopeful it was for him after everything he had seen, to see this movement growing up among them and being willing to say, put it in this book, that there was something here that he had been unable to do but that he was seeing grow up among them. That was pretty astonishing, pretty astonishing. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we move on? It's Monica. Melanie. Leah. Monica, Melanie, and then Leah. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. It's Monica again, Recovered Compulsive Will Reader. I'm just basically going to piggyback on what you were saying, that here we are reading the doctor's opinion, and this is Dr. Silkworth who is talking to us here. And as a psychiatrist in New York City, and we were given very important credentials at the beginning of this chapter about him, that he was a chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction. And this Dr. Silkworth treated thousands and thousands and thousands of alcoholics. And he only had about a 2% success rate using psychology with these people. This guy had to have been a saint working with them and seeing the same ones coming back, you know, over and over and over again. There hadn't been much hope for him, but somehow he had a little, you know, he did have a little bit. Those few successes here and there must have, he hung on to those. And to see the tragedies, like he said, you know, families being broken apart, children being destroyed, just total despair. And here suddenly he's seeing something that's working. And he's admitting as a doctor, as a well-known, specialized doctor in alcoholism, that he didn't know it all. He didn't have the answers. But here was something that was working. What hope? And this was people helping other people without any other uh, uh, underlying reasons but to help them concern and wel- for welfare of others. You know, because prior to the 1930s, prior to this, there, were, there wasn't any treatment. Alcoholics um, were hardly ever able to put down the alcohol. They usually ended up dying or in asylums or jails. So thank God for Dr. Silkworth, and I'll pass. Thank you, Monica. Go ahead, Melanie. Thank you, Janice. This is Melanie, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. I hope that I have something different to share. Um, 
that I want to, I, again, uh, I would be the third person piggybacking on um, what Janice was saying, and that is that um, this particular psychiatrist treated, as, as Monica was saying, over 51,000 alcoholics in his career. And so then I look at the families in addition to that. And so he saw and experienced quite, quite a bit here. And my own personal experience I think I shared this the last time we were in this particular chapter, was um, in, a, um, in a police department where there was these tiny children, um, uh, one of which was very beaten up very, very badly because of an alcoholic parent that had hurt this child. And, and this, this parent had been in many, many times before, and there was no place else to send these kids but to... Um, another place or back with a parent and these parents didn't mean to do these things. And so I can only imagine with 51,000 families what this doctor might have been experiencing this when Bill had his white light experience and went out about sharing that with other people and something started to change. You know, there's this comparison between what was cynical opinion broad wide about what alcoholics were and what this little doctor and his colleagues were up against in, in dealing with that. And then one man comes and talks about religion, has this white light experience, and something changes what they were all up against. And then these families trying to put them all back together. It was a huge deal, a huge deal. And my one tiny experience seeing this in the police department and many sets like that a year ago made such an impression on me and then to compound that by 51,000 families and this little movement that was rising up making this night and day difference, this profound movement that would move a scientific community in such a way. I mean, just these small people in, in the beginning would move these people to say, I think that you're on to something, and together we can. Can you imagine? And then we fast forward 75 years to what we're doing in this room right here with well over 200 people, on, not well over, but, you know, good smidgen over 200 people on the line today. What is going to happen in a movement such as this with a basic, basic program precisely executed in the same fashion that I passed? Thank you, Melanie. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks so much, Janice. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. I mean, again, Dr. Silkworth, uh, you know, highly um, recognized and admired. Um, you know, most physicians, nobody liked to work with alcoholics because they didn't do uh, what the physicians suggested they do and the alcoholics would lie and they'd get dried out for a period of time and then end up back in the hospital um the only reason dr silkworth ended up working with alcoholics is because the stock market crashed and he he needed a job so he ended up with this job working with alcoholics and uh, you know, it says, let them stand with us for a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing lives, the little children. Um, you know, addiction is, is a disease that touches all who surround and love and care for uh, the addict. I mean, it, 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 it engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. And, you know, you might say, well, that's the alcoholic because compulsive overeating, you know, only affects me. 
But that's not true. You know, whether you're up 20 pounds or 200 pounds, the reality is that when this disease lives and breathes within our minds, we're not available for other people. We're emotionally unpredictable. We're irresponsible. We're like a landmine. You never know who's going to greet you at the door. You know, we're unavailable. We're emotionally unavailable. In marriages, we can be physically unavailable. We lack the uh, desire to be emotionally intimate or physically intimate. Dr. Silkworth freely risked his professional reputation and admitted, admitted the limitation of his art. I mean, men of science and men of medicine stood absolutely powerless by the bedside of these alcoholic men and women. They knew not what, they didn't know what to do with them. And all you have to do is crack open a newspaper today or turn on your computer and see that the rest of the world doesn't know what to do with compulsive overeaters either. They stand powerless beside us. They know not what to do with us. It says here at the bottom, we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing. Again, Dr. William Silkworth, this highly reputable physician, neurologist, someone who's admired and inspired others in his field, found nothing which had contributed more to the rehabilitation. Again, this is not just mere elimination of alcohol for these men and women. This was not just drying out. This was a recreation. This was a rebirth of these men that the altruistic movement now growing up among them. This was a message of depth and weight. This was the realization by this physician that alcoholics were suffering from a disease which only a spiritual experience would conquer. There was no intellect. There was no medical manual that was going to uh, conquer the obsession of the mind. Dr. William Silkworth realized that the alcoholic, and for us, compulsive overeaters, we need a new mind. We need to transcend the intellect, not by using the intellect. We need a spirit-guided mind. How do we get one of those? Where do you buy one of those? You get it through the process of the 12 steps. And your journey as a compulsive overeater is going to take you to two places either to continued suffering and eventual death, or to bliss. And if you embrace a spiritual journey, that will mean freedom. And that's exactly what Dr. Silkworth saw, and that's exactly why he championed this movement. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Well, we'll close the meeting here today. Thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with a reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. And Esther, could you read that for us? Sure. Good morning. My name is Esther. I'm a compulsive overeater in Canada. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit 
and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you, Esther.